Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. Good day. Uh, thanks very much for uh, having me today. Uh, my name is uh, Fortune Mujapelo. I am a founder, co-founder and CEO of uh, Bushfold Minerals Limited. We are a vertically integrated primary vanadium company uh, that is not only a significant producer of vanadium to the steel and chemicals uh, industries, uh, where we supply about 3.5% of the global market and growing, uh, but also at the forefront of driving vanadium's place in the very exciting and growing uh, stationary energy storage industry. Um, we supplied, uh, produced 3,600 metric tons of vanadium in 2020, which is just about 3.5% of the market. Uh, we are set to grow this to between five and 5,400 tons per annum uh, by end of 2022, based on the refurbishment program currently underway at uh, VanCamp. Uh, one of our operations and uh, we have a longer term plan um, sorry medium term plan to increase this production further to about six and a half thousand tons and longer term to 8400 metric tons of vanadium per annum plus so we have a very um, uh, positive outlook on the vanadium market uh, we believe that it's a market that's growing and we think we're very well positioned in terms of growing our production into this market Fortune, lovely to see you again. Thank you for coming back on the show. Um, you just put out your operation, well, first half operational update. I think if we were having this conversation last week, um, there didn't seem to be much of a reaction, but this week there is. Can you explain why? Uh, look, I think it's good to see the um, uh, the positive uptick in our share price. Um, I think, you know, I'm on record as, as having said, I believe that the share price of this company does not yet reflect the true fundamental value. Um, uh, that's reflected in some of the things we're going to discuss and talk about um, uh, today. Um, we had a difficult Q1 um, in terms of our production. I think it's fair to say in terms of our volumes there. Um, I believe that we have turned the corner. We had a 35-day extended maintenance shutdown program, uh, March, April, um, which has... Uh, seen our production stabilize at Vometco, um, and uh, we um, are very happy to see that uh, operational stability become, um, uh, a, you know, a, an ongoing feature of our operations there. Um, in terms of production levels, I think in Q2, uh, during the months of June and July, we saw production of uh, 278 metric tons of vanadium and um, 261 metric tons, uh, respectively. That's even already higher than the new baseline of 240 metric tons of vanadium per month that we uh, guided the market. Um, so, so that for me is um, is, is positive. Um, we are seeing that trend continue. So, we're very happy that um, I believe that uh, we've got this. Uh, uh, plant um, on the right footing. Uh, we have uh, a new leadership in place in terms of, um, uh, you know, operations leadership. We appointed an operations director at the beginning of 2021, uh, who now has a, a fairly solid team uh, overseeing Vametco, Vancam, and will also include the electrolyte uh, manufacturing plant um, and Mokopane. Uh, which is um, where we've got that mining right. Um, and uh, I think one of the values of establishing this leadership team is that, you know, we've, we've brought in someone with a lot of experience running large 
complex operations with some good turnaround expertise and experience as well in the in form of Francois Nodier. And um, and uh, he's uh, doing a great job. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm excited that uh, we now have, I would say, a really good platform, uh, both at Vamedco and Vancam, uh, to drive our, our production going forward, uh, including the growth targets that we've set ourselves. Vanadium is volatile. It has been a quite volatile ride, right? So 2019 saw some, you know, price spikes driven by, uh, you know, ch- China regulations changing. We saw a little spike at the beginning of this year for you in, in terms of the way your shares reacted. Um, what What's going on out there? Because it seems to be that there's, there's stuff that you can control. You've made some new appointments. You've had to change your, your your guidance to the to the market, and then there's the vanadium market proper, which is you know traditionally stainless steel. People like to talk about VRFBs, but it, it's it's there's a lot of moving parts here. So what should we be focused on? Well, for us as a company, our focus has always been make sure that you're producing vanadium as cheaply as possible, right? And and one of the uh, drivers of our cost of production is increasing throughput through our plants. Uh, we expect to see a significant improvement in our cost position. For example, in 2019, we had uh, a group uh, average peak unit cost of an item of about $37 per kilogram B. Um, last year, um, in 2019, we produced 2,931 group, group-wide. Last year, our production had gone up to 3,600, and our group per unit costs uh, were down to about $29 per kilogram V. So um, there is a significant fixed cost dilution that comes through as you increase your throughput through this plant. Um, it's important that we make sure that we are producing as cheaply as we can. That's in our control. Um, I think that is a primary producer. Um, when you look at the overall industry, we are still uh, very much uh, a low cost producer uh, in the first quarter of the cost curve. Um, and um, you want to stay there um, because ultimately, you know, notwithstanding the volatility in the, in the vanadium prices, we believe that if you're a low cost producer, you will generate margin. Now, I should make the point that when we look at the market itself, um, in terms of market demand supply balance, um, you know, we still believe in the thesis of a structural deficit in the vanadium market. Uh, one that we think will actually grow as, um, you know, vanadium deployments in the through vanadium redox flow batteries in the stationary energy storage space continue. Uh, vanadium consumption in steel uh, will continue to grow. We see intensive use of vanadium increasing across the board. Um, and uh, in China, of course, it's driven by new standards um, being in- enforced with greater um, um, uh, with, with greater effectiveness. Uh, but you'll have seen also more recently the United States um, that there was a bipartisan approval of an infrastructure uh, program. Uh, so you know we've long talked about you know markets like that will will also start coming through with their infrastructure uh, programs. Uh, which will boost steel demand and in turn will also boost vanadium uh, demand. So we, we still see the steel sector providing very good base for demand, uh, growing, in fact, going forward. Then you've got the energy storage applications, which we think will produce a step change in the demand profile. 
Supply, we still see it concentrated and constrained, particularly around the core producers uh, who you can imagine at this kind of steel prices we have today. And um, with what we've seen with iron ore prices, number one, are producing almost you know, as, as, as much as they can produce really um, at uh, capacity and uh, producing exclusively um, using their feedstock uh, magnetite uh, deposits that are vanadium, which means that the scope for them to increase vanadium production through slag, very, very limited. Um, new steel capacity in China, we don't see it being of a co-production type. We see it targeting more hematite or scrap uh, through EAF technologies. So when you look at that supply picture, we think ultimately you've got a structural deficit. And it's a deficit which we think primary producers are best positioned to uh, to meet because of their low cost production base, because of their margin capacity and their cash flows, which means that they're able to scale up production on a brownfield basis. They can do it cheap and they can do it quicker than anybody trying to build a greenfield uh, plant. Okay, so the, the the thesis as you as you've laid out, structural deficit coming. Um, you need to have a platform, and you need the ability to supply into that three and a half percent at the moment. You want to do more. I get it. So if people believe that, then they should be looking at you. So let's 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 talk about what what you're doing at the moment, right? You've ha- you've had to change change your guidance this year. And you've also recruited a new ops director, effectively, um, to come on board. So what, what's going on there? Look, I mean, the, the uh, recruitment of ops director was something that we were always going to do. Uh, you'll recall we started off with a single plant uh, at Vamedco. Uh, we've got the mining right executed at Mokopane. We acquired Vancam. And uh, we've now you know, started construction of our electrolyte plant. So the, 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 the number of operations and the complexity is growing. So you need to make sure that you're providing sufficient uh, leadership uh, to that. Um, And um, secondly, um, it's quite important that we make sure that while we do that, you know, our cooperations, which is Yuvamedic and Vancam, you know, are operating well. I mean, these are old plants. They need to be managed well. Um, And there are a few things that we have changed. Part of the leadership team that uh, Francois has includes uh, someone who's, you know, focused on uh, the disciplines around our maintenance practices. Um, And uh, secondly, um, you know, we're introducing much shorter interval controls in our operations uh, to make sure that if there's anything that goes wrong, we can intervene much, much earlier. Um, And, um, uh, you know, people leadership in terms of developing the depth of our technical uh, Tim, um, these are just some of the of the things that we're changing. But I think one of the more significant changes, uh, Matt, is that the manner in which we look at guidance is is shifted. Um, you know, we we believe this is a plant that can produce more than it is doing today. But when you set guidance, you need to set it on the basis of what your plant has historically demonstrated it can produce. Um, and um, because if you don't do that and you set it based on aspiration, you run the risk of spending the rest of your year chasing, catching up. And we did that last year. And I think it came back to bite us. You know, last year, we um, we had that uh, COVID-related uh, lockdown uh, where we lost about a month's worth of production. Um, and we spent much, we didn't do our maintenance shutdown. Uh, we spent much of our time trying to also 
catch up to a loss production. And that caught up with us January, February of this year, which is why we decided on that extended 35-day maintenance. Um, but also we decided that um, we would replace Vermetco particularly at 240 per month um, and uh, in metric tons of vanadium production per month, uh, which it has done consistently, historically. Um, let's prioritize operating, operational stability. Uh, let's make sure that there's little variability in our key techno, uh, technical parameters in the plant, your recoveries, your availabilities, your throughputs, et cetera. And when you, when you get that right, um, then that gives you a solid foundation on which you can look to increase your production. Um, and by the way, we do think there is opportunities to increase production, but only when we've demonstrated that sustainably over a period of time can we start backing it into our, into our guidance. So those are just some of the shifts, uh, Matt. Um, and as I said, that we're starting to see the benefits of that um, in the operations. Um, and uh, I hope that, um, you know, that's a sign of good things to come. Well, it, it, it sounds like growing pains and growing up from you, from you guys in terms of the way that you approach this. Because let's remember, 2016, you're an exploration company. You couldn't have said it better. Um, we were an exploration company with about 30 people um, and uh, just completed a pre-feasibility study. And as you know, with PFS studies and all of those, you're using outends. And all of a sudden, in 2017, with the acquisition of Ametco, you shift into a producing company uh, with 450 plus people. And let's let's also remember that you know when you look at vanadium production, many people um, miss this part that the the um, it's a complex plant, um, it's a complex flow sheet. For the most part, if I give you the example of the uh, chrome industry, you will mine, you will crush, you will do your, you know, milling and you produce your concentrate. What do we do? We mine, we crush, secondary tertiary crushing, milling, and then max separation to produce a concentrate. That's only, that's only about 20% of the way, right? And we're not selling a product yet. At that point, we now go into the kiln roasting. Then we've got a hydromate process afterwards uh, with the leaching circuit. Then after that, you get another pyramid process uh, where you produce nitrogen. So what I'm saying is you move from an exploration company overnight into a company that is owning uh, a fairly complex uh, processing um, facility. Um, it's not an excuse, by the way. Uh, it's just a reality that requires you to just grow up fast. Um, and while you're still doing that, uh, you acquire a second plant. Now, someone could say, and I've heard somebody say this before, why, why don't you just wait and just bed this down um, before you go on to make another acquisition? Well, and if you remember also, we completed the acquisition of Vancom in 2019. Average prices in 2019 were about $50, but prices had already kind of been coming down. Um, but the reason we still went ahead with that acquisition was that we understood the world is going to require a lot more vanadium into the future, number one. Number two, it's going to be primary producers in our view that are best positioned to respond in this. Number three, if you're going to try to build a greenfield plant, you're talking hundreds of millions of dollars. If you're talking a, a brownfield plant, you can do that quicker and you can do it cheaper. And Vancam was the last operational primary vanadium plant that was there. 
Um, so it was quite strategically important for us. And I'm leaving uh, Vindemura out, which is in Australia, which is not yet producing, which is still not producing yet. Um, so we took the decision to acquire that plant, uh, Vancam. So now you add an additional plant and your employee numbers grow and you're now managing across multiple sites. Um, I think that when you take all of that into account, um, the amount of growing up we've had to do is not insignificant. Um, and I should say this, that we are up to the challenge. Uh, Vancam is doing well from a stability point of view. We are you know, underway with our refurbishment program um, at Vancam. Um, and, um, and I believe that we've come a long, long way. Um, and I believe that also we're very, very well positioned, not just in terms of the production of vanadium, but in terms of, you know, the opportunity within the energy storage uh, uh, space, which, which we have uh, for five years uh, played quite a key role in shaping, leading, um, putting in place the necessary building blocks. Um, and um, I think going forward, you know, we start to see an acceleration of, of those initiatives. Okay, so you brought Francois in, you brought one guy in. Are you look and, and, and I appreciate you, but you've, you've been driving down the cost as well, right? So, not one, not one guy. We bring in Francois with the team. He's got a okay. team, you know, group lead for maintenance. Um, we have, uh, you know, someone who looks after she. Uh, we've got, um, you know, someone who looks after, um, who look after our project. Uh, so there is a. Um, there's a team around him. Um, okay, all new, brand new. Well, not entirely brand new. You know, we've we've moved some people around as well. Uh, we've restructured our operations to make them a lot leaner and just to focus them at the site on key deliverables of you know production um, and uh, cost um, and uh, making sure that license to operate is maintained in terms of environmental compliance, safety, health. Um, and um, so we, we've, done, we've done some changes in our structure, which I think are good in terms of producing a much greater level of focus at the operations and providing higher level uh, strategic guidance um, at the level of our operations director. We, we, we will likely still grow that team more, um, but um, you know, that's, that's already quite significant incremental capacity we've created. Right. Okay. So you you've created you you've reorganized the workforce around the new guy coming in with the experience, relevant experience to allow you to optimize the production side of things, reducing costs, all of the good stuff that you're meant to do. Right. So let's let's talk about the stuff that you you can't control in terms of um, pricing. We talked about structural deficit, but today. How do you operate in this market today? Because if, if, as a financier looking in, I'm going, vanadium is all over the place. I can't quite actually work out some kind of steady, sustained stream of cash flow for you. And I don't know what my margins are. Although I appreciate you're doing a good job. Great platform, driving costs down. You've got the production capacity there. It's, so all the kind of good stuff that you can control, you're doing well. But when you're having conversations with bankers, with financiers, with market, uh, with the market, about why this thing is going to work. What do you say to them? I say to them, firstly, um, if I'm in the first quarter of the course curve, you know that I am. I have a good business um, that will generate margin, even if it may go through periods of difficulty. Look at this. Between 2018 and 2020, 
right? Cumulatively, we generated about more than a hundred, let me put it so we generated about 120 or million dollars in combined EBITDA. Right? We lost $15 million last year. Uh, that was our, our EBITDA loss. Uh, but before that, we made, you know, a hundred uh, on $1 million. In 2018, we made $32.6 million in 2019. So uh, you got to kind of look at it through the cycle and make sure that you have a low cost production base. But then the second question you have to do is you have to take a view on where you see the market, um, you know, because that, that informs how much, how much endurance you're willing to take during the down cycle. Now, I talked about the market supply demand balance. And I talked about the fact that I think that the future in terms of growth uh, really lies with primary producers, they're low cost producers. But if you look outside of, if let's talk about primary producers, uh, you need grade. Um, and if you look at the projects that have been announced out there in the market, um, you know, you're going to find these projects in Australia, uh, in South Africa, or Brazil. Um, but if you're in Australia, your typical grades are in the order of 1, 1.1% 1 V205 in concentrate. And so what is the incentive price you need on a sustained basis uh, to support the development of, of new plants? I guess it's the question. And um, I would venture to say that when you've got grades of around 1%, um, and assuming you can access some debt, which is a difficulty still um, for vanadium, uh, you know, for greenfield vanadium projects, the price point you need um, to support projects like that, it's significantly north of, you know, your $45 price per kilogram V. Um, if you got projects in South Africa where you've got good uh, grade, again, assuming you can get that, you know, you're still talking prices that are significantly not of $40 uh, per kilogram V. So the point I make here is that as long as you can have an operation whose cost of production is sub $30, um, you know, you've got a good operation and you're going to generate margin through the cycle. Um, and, um, and that's why I think a primary producer is in a very, very good position. Um, we don't have control of where the prices go. As we look forward and as vanadium flow batteries, you know, take up a greater, you know, uh, as, as the momentum continues to build and they, they take up greater and greater market share, we hope that we'll see more stability uh, of vanadium. Uh, with the vanadium lease construct in terms of the lease renting of vanadium electrolyte into these batteries, we're comfortable also that at vanadium prices of between $40 and $50, you still actually can deploy VRFPs on a very cost competitive basis. Um, so, based on all of these uh, considerations, Matt, I, you know, we, we, we will not speculate uh, and focus what the price is going to be, but we can only look at what kind of incentives price you're going to require to stimulate supply and then say, is that incentive price um, good enough to get more primary production going up, number one, and number two, um, is that price not too high uh, so as to be uh, to have a dampening effect on the deployments of vanadium redox flow batteries. And that's, that's why we love that 40 to $50 kind of uh, sweet spot for vanadium prices. We think that it's great for, um, uh, for, for new supply development, as well as for promoting the, the demand side through VRFPs and the energy storage space.
do you think you've got the business model right? And what I mean by that is we've been talking about the mining component, and obviously you just mentioned something which which um, VRFB, okay, the vanadium redox flow batteries. One of your big competitors has gone down the industrial chemicals route. We're certainly talking about it. Whether or not you believe they can do it is another matter. Because it seems to me that vanadium companies need to kind of smooth that curve, you know, and not have to think in terms of cycles, but in terms of people's perception of where the revenue or future revenue is coming from, irrespective of what the the vanadium price is is doing. So is your model fully formed yet? Our model is fully defined and we're just busy executing it. Uh, we've often made the statement that um, the energy storage uh, applications of vanadium provide a natural hedge uh, for vanadium price volatility because when vanadium prices are lower, that helps the cost competitiveness of vanadium redox flow batteries. But keep in mind that the margin opportunity within that value chain itself, through a vertically integrated model, you're able to tap into that. Right. So all in all, we, we started talking about a vertically integrated platform years ago, and I'm very pleased to see other Vanadium companies kind of you know pick on that mantra, because it is important, um, particularly if Vanadium Redux flow batteries are gonna be successful, that upstream producers uh, go downstream and integrate vertically. And, um, and, and there's a lot of benefit for that, um, particularly around the point I make, which is that it provides a very good, healthy, natural, uh, natural hedge. What about the industrial chemical component? Do you think there's any possibility that you'd look at that? Always going to be a small part of the vanadium market in our view. Um, but of course, if you include electrolyte, then it, it blows up, right? It becomes much, much bigger. Um, and uh, the production of electrolyte, 200 megawatt hour uh, uh, electrolyte manufacturing plant we're building will, will, will entail 1,100 tons of vanadium uh, per annum, um, you know, which is a significant share for vanadium production already. So, you know, the electrolyte space will be the dominant uh, share of vanadium within the chemical space. If we, you know, if we, if I can put it that way. Okay, and um, I think it's connected. So I want to ask that you've got some litigation going on at the moment. Um, yeah, where, where is, is that a big distraction? Are we, what's the actual knock-on effect of, of that? Should you lose? Yeah, look, all all litigation is a distraction and a nuisance. Um, I think we can be. Uh, candid about that. Um, as we said in the announcement, that litigation really is around our joint venture agreement with uh, our partner Garnet, um, and um, it centers around the investment by Mustang uh, into our structure called VRFB Energy, which owns 50% of Eneros. Now, uh, if you go back to interviews we've done, if you read our material, you'll see that when it comes to manufacturing of, of an item for batteries, if you look at our bushfield energy strategy, uh, one part of it is we're going to produce the electrolyte. Um, and secondly, we're going to deploy a rental product. Um, which we think is an important catalyst for uh, the success of an electrolyte flow batteries. We are also going to take advantage of the fact that we are a customer ourselves in terms of our power consumption 
and hence the mini grid uh, that we are uh, doing, uh, 3.5 megawatts of PV solar and 4 megawatt hour VRFB, which is really a pilot if you think about it, because we need a lot more. So we'll scale that up significantly. We've said that the opportunity space is as much as 125 megawatts of solar PV and 180 megawatt hours of battery energy storage. When we're operating at full capacity, that's the kind of scale of the opportunity. And that's just us. And before you consider other uh, companies who, you know, looking at the success of our uh, mini grid, we believe that there will be opportunities, particularly in South Africa, where the self-generation is increasingly encouraged among big power consumers, right? So when you've got the electrolyte manufacturing, electrolyte rentals, and you've got a really good, sizable market opportunity that you can deploy batteries into, what the VRFB manufacturers need is to scale up. Now, we don't want to reinvent the wheel. I think we've always said that. Uh, we don't want to start an R&D company to try and develop our own battery. What we want is the credible VRFB manufacturing companies out there to scale up production capacity quickly. And uh, we believe also that there's significant commercial upside in these companies, because if you think about it, we're de-risking them on the upstream side in terms of vanadium supply, in terms of electrolyte supply. We're also de-risking them in a huge way in terms of the market opportunity for deployment of these batteries because we are already a market and we're creating a market, particularly in the areas that we operate. So what that should allow us to do is to mobilize funding to support these companies. I mean, we did this with Infinity. We put in $5 million into what was then Avalon on a condition that they merged with what was then Red Tier to create Infinity Energy Systems. It's listed, it's successful, it's growing. And we've exited that, we made good returns on that. But you know, in addition to that, we have co collaboration um, around the rental uh, of vanadium electrolyte and the right of first refusal to supply vanadium into that. Right? So when you look at that, for me, it's a big tick. When it comes to CellCube, that was a similar approach in terms of bringing in investment partners. We brought Garnet in as a partner uh, to invest in all of this, but we were always quite clear. I think the difference between CellCube and Infinity is that we're in, uh, in Infinity, we had only an 8% interest in CellCube and, uh, slash Anorox. We have a 25% interest, but we have a control over controlling interest over a 50% shareholder. Uh, we did that deliberately and there was a strategic rationale for us doing that. Um, and um, so I'm, I'm, I'm going all this length to make the point that, you know, what was the motivation for us was to try and mobilize capital so that it's not solely dependent on our balance sheet and we can scale up production capacity quickly. One of the risks, of course, you always enter into when you bring in partners is that you can have disagreements. In this instance, we had a disagreement uh, with Garnet, which we hope will be resolved. Um, and uh, obviously we hope that will be resolved in our favor. Um, and because we think that uh, it's an important company with a great future. But I think it, once things go to litigation, the kind of relationships are seem sort of irretrievably damaged. You know, can you work with them going forward, no matter who wins? I think we all have to be grown up about things. Um, that's all I can say. Um, 
is an important company. It's going to play an important role in the energy storage space. It's important to Bush Vault, um, and uh, I imagine it is important to Garnet as well. Um, um, we want it to succeed. Um, you know, right now the company is operating. It's got a management team. It is funded. We raised thirty million dollars, um, and it is continuing to develop uh, and secure projects. So, uh, and we'll continue to obviously uh, support that um, that goal. Um, and um, yeah, ultimately, when it's all resolved, grown-ups will mature. We'll make sure there's still a company that's growing and that's making money. Okay. And I guess one thing I was may have gone in the favour of the VRFB companies this week was a, a small fire in uh, New South Wales. Or was yeah. it Victoria? <laughs> Somewhere yeah. southern Australia. In, in Australia, yes. Yeah. So here's the thing about about that, right? I mean, we've always talked about the fact that um, when it comes to stationary applications, um, long duration applications, uh, we think that flow batteries are the answer. The United States government is said as much themselves um, that for grid scale storage, they believe flow batteries are the solution. Um, Noting, funny, interestingly, that vanadium flow batteries are the most mature amongst the flow battery technologies. Um, um, the only concern that they raise is about availability of vanadium, which I would say to them, there is more than enough vanadium in the world. We just need to scale up processing capacity. Um, lithium, lithium, the lithium ion industry and, and the fire hazard, it's, it's not new. Uh, we've, I think if you read our presentations, we do talk about the thema thermal runaway risks associated with, uh, uh, you know, lithium ion uh, technologies in the stationary space. I don't think that that problem has been solved, um, you know, and uh, the, the lithium ion industry still need to find solutions towards this. And I hope they do. Um, and, and you might find it um, intriguing that I say that, um, but it's because the, the stationary space is that large. I don't believe that vanadium flow batteries uh, alone could 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 adequately meet that requirement, right? And when you add other technologies for that matter, it is going to be huge. We're talking a hundred gigawatt hours of new stationary energy storage deployments per annum by 2027, according to Navigant. Um, so. I think that um, I think in time, hopefully, they will find some solutions. Um, but it's an opportunity for vanadium flow batteries, um, and vanadium flow batteries capture only just twenty percent of that market. Um, you know, we will need a humongous amount of vanadium production, in new production uh, to come on stream over the next decade. So, I think that um, you know we we certainly intend to. Uh, to shout as loud as possible about the benefits of VRFPs in the long duration space. They are inherently safe. There's never been a fire with a VRFP battery. Um, it doesn't happen. Uh, they are scalable uh, in long duration applications and you know they are cost effective. Uh, they're long life. I mean, I can go on and on. The fact that we can rent the electrolyte into these batteries means that at the end of the life, because there's no degradation, we can use it in another battery. And uh, we can also take that electrolyte into our facilities and convert it into ferrovanadium. So you don't need to build new complex uh, recycling facilities for vanadium electrolyte. So for all these reasons, I think that, um, you know, it's a good opportunity for vanadium redox flow batteries uh, to step up and, um, you know, uh, take their position. 
Well, there's a few things going on in the States, and it seems to me a lot of the agenda and narrative is, is being driven out of there at the moment. Obviously, you've had the Section 232 announcement recently. We should probably talk about you have got the big green uh, deal, the big initiative by the U.S. government to start, um, one, either f- focusing on uh, uh, critical minerals, nice security. Yep. Um, two is obviously electrification um of a lot of industries, a lot of the, in terms of the, not just the OEMs, but just across the board, we're seeing boats, planes, everyone um, getting involved now. For VRFB, as a use case for store, long-term storage of, of energy, the tone is being set by the states. How do you, as a company, take advantage of that? Because at the moment you're talking like a miner, right? But you got more excited about the VRFB future there to, to me. So what's that What's that time frame look like? How do you start? I know you said you def, you've got a very clearly defined business model, but how does that evolve? How do people start seeing this consistency of revenue stream by leasing your you know, electrolyte uh, in, into VRFB batteries? Where, how, where, how does this evolve? How does the company move forward? So... We are moving forward. I think, the product, again, if I talk about the VRFB space, the um, electrolyte manufacturing plant is an important part of that. Um, writing more contracts for leasing is an important part of it. We've articulated a three-stage um, uh, implementation plan uh, in respect of our uh, electrolyte plant. Um, what we mean by that is we said we'll start off writing contracts in uh, using our own balance sheet. And then we will look to write bigger contracts. We did a, a deal with Infinity uh, and Pivot Power, which is part of EDF. Um, and you know, we will provide electrolyte on a rental basis. Uh, we continue to explore more rental constructs. Our own mini uh, uh, mini grid is going to have a, a rental uh, contract there. Ultimately, we want to create a, a platform um, that will. Uh, rent electrolyte out um, into the broader industry. And we think that that platform needs to be scalable. Um, we're doing that because we're seeing the global market opportunity is is there. Um, the manufacturing of the VRFB is through CellCube is an important part of it. So that's what I mean, that it's, it's, it's a strategy in motion, in execution. Um, the U.S. market you made mention of, uh, of course, we're delighted with that uh, uh, Section 232 outcome, uh, where the government um, basically decided that um, imports of vanadium into the U.S. did not pose a national security threat, and I think that um, that was a that was a right outcome. Uh, we invested quite a lot of energy in responding uh, in that investigation and contributing to it. Um, very happy to see that we were cited in the in the report, uh, which I think you know gives. Um, um, is, is, is a positive uh, affirmation, let me put it that way, of, um, of our views around the vanadium market. Um, so in the market, the US market, we supplied you know, more than a third of our production into that market. So it's an important market for us. We think it will continue to be an important market. Um, diversification geographically is important as well. Of course, we've increased production uh, into China. Um, and into the rest of the Asian uh, region, uh, we continue to explore opportunities. Um, but uh, we, we couldn't be more delighted uh, with the Section 232 outcome. As you already have alluded to the infrastructure build program, um, the uh, kind of um, aspirations that the Biden administration has made in terms of you know, curbing climate change, in terms of you know, transition to cleaner energy, 
uh, all of those will make that an important market, even for uh, not just for vanadium in the steel sector, but for vanadium in the energy storage space. But is that where, where, where does your company end up? Because you're going to go where the margins are, right? You're going to create products where, where the margins are. Is that does that mean stainless steel will eventually take a back seat um, for you, um, or have you got other plans? No, I think I think uh, it's you're talking about applications of energy. I mean, the steel sector. Uh, I think that will continue to be important. Um, it will continue to be an anchor uh, for demand uh, for the foreseeable future. Um, and we think, by the way, with very good margin uh, opportunities um, for us. Um, I would say that um, in terms of the energy storage space, it'll, it'll support demand and participating in that value chain means that there's economics that we, we unlock there for ourselves. You'll appreciate that the business model for an energy business is not the same for a mining business. Uh, the business model for a rental uh, entity for an item electrolyte uh, is different from the business model for an IPP developer, for example, that is deploying PV solar or wind uh, plus storage solutions. Um, and I think one of the things that um, is, is, is a priority for us as far as energy is concerned is to help the market get an appreciation of those business models and understand how do you attribute value to what we're doing uh, in the energy space. I mentioned the term building blocks earlier on. All of these things coming together, we believe we're in a position where we can start to articulate the value proposition of Pushful Energy in a very um, granular way. Um, and, um, and, and there is a strategy in, as far as that's concerned. I, I won't go into too much details about that. But, yeah. but, but, they, but I think that's what the, it feels to me. That's what the market's looking for, because you got them excited about it a couple of years ago. Right. And what I want to hear is there's a big, long annuity stream of cash. There's some a, a, a kind of base from which you can build. Um, yeah. As opposed to just selling vanadium into, you know, the stainless steel, steel market, because that's exciting. You can borrow against future revenues. You can, you can, it's a step change for the company if you can get to the point where you've got enough of those contracts in place. So that's that's what I'm excited about when I'm listening to your story. But I'm trying to understand the timing of that because you're right. There is no scale with the VRFB companies. You know, there's no cons consistent technology yet. So you gotta you gotta you know hook yourself up to the right, the you know the right team. Yeah. What, how do you do that? I know you've Look, got I mean, some partners I'm, now, but you may change your mind. You may need to change your mind. Look, we will. With time, we'll, you will get to see more and more about Cellcube, for example, and its um, um, its contracts that it's winning and, and the revenue model for that you can. By the way, if you wanted to get a sense of what that looks like already, just take a look at Infinity, right? Because it's a similar it's a similar um, uh, business, um, and um, you know the more contracts they write, the more revenue they're going to generate and earnings. I should add, um, but that's 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 not years to come. Uh, Cellcube. Anorox is producing batteries today. It's deploying them into the market. Um, I would say also that um, uh, as far as the rental uh, are concerned, we are writing contracts and we, you know, we're pursuing more contracts and uh, that will itself also come out. Um, I think that the thing I would say, Matt, is that if an analyst is looking at Bushfall, and if you read the analyst reports that um, uh, are there, a mining analyst understands that upstream part of our business very well. Yeah. And you typically find that there's not as much 
um, written about the downstream side of the business. If I went to capital goods analysts who are always active in this energy space, they'll probably have a lot to say about our energy uh, business and much less about our upstream business. It's a, fun, it's, it's a structure of the capital markets the way they are, right? We still kind of classified as a mining business. And I dare say we are not just a mining business. We mine, we also have manufacturing, processing uh, business, and we're an energy business. So how do we position bushfold minerals in the capital markets in a way, number one, that people who write about it, uh, that we bring the right people to write about it across the value chain, right? Not just the upstream. Secondly, in a way that we can attract the investors uh, who are particularly interested in aspects of what we do. The investors who love the mining and the processing part of our business, they get it and they can make investment decisions based on that. But the energy piece, they don't quite get it. Then you've got investors who get the energy piece, the upside, and are keen to get into that, but they don't see Bush for Minerals as an energy play. So how do we create pathways for both of these investors to participate in the story that we're doing? And that's part of, that's part of what we're doing when we talk about our capital market strategy. Again, I'm not going to say too much at this stage because it's a, it's a work in progress. Suffice to say that... You know, those are those are some of the uh, uh, challenges we are we solving for. I would like to see you um, come to market and do that because I tell you what, investors like more than than energy companies or mining companies, and that's money. And if you can get that mix right and tell that story well, um, I think you will you can get that re-rate that you're looking for. And th- and that's why when we talked about your your a competitor of yours, large competitor of yours, trying to position themselves as an industrial chemicals company is because the multiple on those are bigger than mining companies. It's a smart move. I was about to say exactly that point, which is the valuation metrics are also different, right? Um, They're different for a mining company, they're different for a manufacturing company, and they're different for a tech play as well, right? I mean, there are companies that are with hundreds of millions of pounds and all that they are doing is acquiring renewable energy projects. Now, renewable energy projects, I'm talking about in these projects where you've got a PPA for uh, de- deploying a 30 megawatt power solution here, 100 megawatts there, and then you collectively, you've got this company say, look, we've got you know, 300 megawatts in our portfolio. The annuity businesses, yes, because of the PPAs, uh, they're not massive margin businesses, right? But they are new to businesses and they've got a good asset base and it is growing. And guess what? Look at their valuations and their valuation matrix. They're, they're, they're great. Um, so we want to tap into that as well. Um, but again, we've got to do it in a very thoughtful, in a very methodical way. And all I'm saying is we, we are engaged with that. And at the right time, we will... Um, we will communicate. I'm looking forward to that one, Fortune, because I think that that's that's a real moment for me um, and your story. But um, in the meantime, um, continue to operate efficiently as you are. Uh, stay in touch and uh, let us know how you get on. Okay, Matt. Before you go, I'm going to just say one final one final thought. Okay, um, and it is the following: In 2016, when we were I just completed our pre-feasibility study on our Mokopani project. Uh, we were talking a lot earlier on about you know, how we've grown as a company. We articulated that we're adopting a brownfield strategy. We're going to look for existing assets, whether we need to refurbish them or repurpose them. 
And that's how we saw we, ourselves developing from a company at the time that was valued at about 17 million pounds. Faced with a project that required about $300 million in terms of CapEx on a greenfield basis, mine processing plants, that's the Mokopane project. Since then, we have acquired Vometco, we've acquired Vancam, and if I add the capital expenditure that we have put in to May, we're looking at a total of about $150 million, right? Even then, we have created a platform whose replacement value, if you're building on a greenfield basis, is, is several times that investment. But more importantly is that we've done that and funded that leveraging cash flows that the same assets have generated. And because of cash flows, we've been able to also bring in debt. Uh, we've raised only over that period of time, cumulatively about $61 million through equity instruments over about a five year period. And in, within this number, I'm talking about warrants that got exercised, convertible notes that got converted into equity right and about 73 million dollars in terms of just pure debt instruments that we're able to bring on board and uh, so if you look at it the point i make is that we have built a platform um, that would have cost us many times more than it cost us and we've been able to fund that uh, through debt and through limited equity investments to a place where today we've got a huge resource base. We've got these two processing plants with capacity to scale up our production to about 8,400 tons. We fund it to 5,000 to 5,400 by end of next year. And we've got an energy platform that is uh, really exciting and um, well on its way to uh, unlocking value. So the point I, I, I want to leave it at is that that transformation you know, really positions us today with an asset base, with the right strategy. I think at the right time as well in terms of developments in the market uh, for what I think is an incredible future for the company. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, cruxinvestor.com and of course our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming and we'll speak to you again soon.